Welcome to the Anyona Podcast. On this show, we cover everything you need to know from early childhood development and education to parenting tips and much more. Now over to our hosts, Tracy and Zoe. Welcome back to our podcast. We are travelling along with quite a few podcasts now and Tracy and I have decided that for a little while we're just going to go back and make sure we covered some of those areas that we have said we would go delve into a little bit deeper as we've gone along. Now, before we start today, as usual, we'd like to acknowledge the Yuggera and Turrbal people who are the ancestral owners of the land on which we both meet today in the Brisbane area. As usual, we would also like to acknowledge the role that they played uh, in raising children over many, many hundreds of thousands of years. And we would like to also look to some of those ideas that they have for inspiration in what we do, and in particular, the idea of connecting really strongly with children. So today, one of the topic that we're going to revisit and extend on a little bit is the area of behavior. And I think Tracy will probably agree with me when I say that for us in the childcare industry, quite often when parents come to us, they're coming to us with an idea that their child has behavior that is a deficit. And today we wanted to unpack that to look at why behavior isn't a deficit, but is actually a learning journey for children. And it is something that um, has to be modeled by us and it has to be supported by us for children to learn the appropriate social behaviors. Quite often there's a term that it's kind of an older term that people used to say and that is misbehavior and I guess the idea behind the real idea behind misbehavior is that children are misinterpreting social cues or it's a misalignment with what the social expectations are on behavior, um, especially when children are quite young because their behaviors are very big and we quite often say they are having big emotions. And for us as adults, it can be quite confronting. It can seem like the behavior is quite antisocial. So we're going to delve into some antisocial and pro-social behaviors as well. So for now, I'm going to hand over to Tracy uh, and she's going to kick us off with some information on how children express emotions and urges. Hi, thanks Zoe. Yeah, so basically I thought where we would start today is discussing, I guess, what is behaviour. As Zoe um, has already alluded to, behaviour isn't, you know, when we have... um, you know, in a centre context, a behaviour management policy in place. What we really mean to say is that we want to find ways to guide children so they don't display antisocial behaviour. So um, behaviour can be like pro-social or antisocial, essentially. But any behaviour, be it pro-social or antisocial, is essentially an expression of a child's emotion or, or urges. So if you've listened to our earlier podcasts, you would have heard our ones about emotional health and development. And certainly what we can see is that when those emotions um, or urges are not being met or not being able to be self-soothed or help being soothed by an adult around, that's when we tend to see what we describe as antisocial behaviours emerging. The... um, the imagery that's really handy to use in this is is the old iceberg metaphor. So what we see at the top of the water is the behavior. And, you know, you might easily be able to identify that with a, a primary emotion, be it anger, be it sadness, be it, you know, maybe you have a child who 
displays joy and happiness in an antisocial way. <laughs> They're a little too excited about life. Um, so that's the bit that we can see. The behaviour is the bit we can see above the, eye, the, the water. Then under the water, the huge bit of iceberg under the water, you know, maybe unmet needs. It might be tiredness. It might be hunger. It might be illness coming on. It might be something that happened two days ago that the child's processing. It might be changes, be them so small that we may not even acknowledge them as a change, but for the child, it's, it's had an impact. So I, I guess here I'd really like to sort of advocate for the fact that children – um, especially in the age group that we're talking about, the, the under sixes, under fives, they they don't manipulate. They, they're they not doing, you know, quite often you hear, oh, they're doing that for attention. Okay, well, maybe attention's an unmet need they have. <laughs> maybe they do need attention and they don't know the, uh, the pro-social way to ask for it. We all need attention. So I don't think they manipulate, but rather they respond and test. So they respond to what's going around the, on, around them in the environment and what's going on for them within themselves, um, and they test. They see what sort of reaction they're going to get, and, and is it a safe reaction? Is it a reliable reaction? This is absolutely their job. We would be way more concerned if we had a child, as I said before, who doesn't um, at some point display some antisocial behaviours. And it's like any other subject that you go to school to learn, like learning to talk, learning to walk, learning to do maths, it has to be taught. It's not It's not necessarily intuitive that children know how to behave. And I think if you look at it sort of globally, yourself, if you were travelling, there's different beh- um, behavioural expectations country to country um, or within different families. Yeah. Um, and definitely behaviour is a scale. I think um, that's something also really important to always remind parents that not every child is going to respond and react in exactly the same way. And we would not expect them to. Just we're born with a genetic disposition to certain things and then it's the nurture that people provide that switch on certain parts of your personality. And so the response that parents give to children in the, from their behaviour will turn on and off certain things So and adults around them. So I think it's, in, yeah, it's really important to remember that and that that is a learning journey, not a, just something that will be for each child. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So when we're looking as adults, as the, the, the more mature party in this relationship and as the, the people who are, are leading and guiding, we really need to, when we identify or we see dem- our child demonstrating a, a behaviour that is not acceptable in society, in our society, whatever that may be, we need to look at not just what's phys- like happening in front of our, but the underlying causes. Um, now, sometimes it could be as simple as it's a big red button, and I, as a three-year-old, I don't have the 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 control to not press that big red button because how appealing does that look? And that's fine. I, but sometimes there could be, I guess, more underlying things going on that we need to address. So we'll sort of get into that as we go through the the podcast today. I guess probably the other thing too is while we're having this discussion and, and, and you're thinking about things at home is to really think about what do you want to motivate your child's behavior. Um, I think as we've discussed in our emotional health podcast that 
ultimately we want children to be extrinsically motivated to do the right thing and to be an active and contributing member of society. We don't want it to be for them to behave well through fear or through receiving rewards. While we certainly should acknowledge pro-social behaviour when we see it and, you know, thank you for helping me do the dishes, that was extremely helpful. You know, things like reward charts, things like, you know, if you tidy your room, you can have a lolly. Those sorts of things um, would probably not be motivating the child to do those things because they should do them as opposed they're doing it for some sort of extrinsic reason. So, and that will probably be something that we delve into, as we always say, in a later podcast. Um, but it's just something to have in the back of your head as we as we talk about behaviours today. So probably a good place to start is thinking about, I guess, how we were, you know, how yourself, what sort of education you received in regards to your behaviour as a child. I think speaking to a lot of the, the um, families we have at our centres, you know, um, time out or being sent to the corner or a a certain step or something like that was quite a common one. And I I guess just as an example is to reflect on thinking what message that sends to a child. I can remember, um, I think it was in primary school and I... I didn't get in very in trouble very often, but I remember <laughs> that there was this one particular time where myself and this new girl, we'd gotten, we were caught chatting too much and then we were asked to stay in at morning tea time. And the punishment was, was that, you know, the teacher's belief was that we wasted some of her time. So she was going to waste some of our time. And I don't remember any learning anything from that, except that it was extremely unjustified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think it damaged the relationship I had with that teacher after that. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think that what the research will show through Dr. Tina Bryson Payne and Dr. Daniel Segal, I'm going to pronounce his name, um, as well as Alfie Cohen, is that, you know, when we give children punishments, and I will in a minute explain the difference between punishments and discipline in a second, but when we give children punishments such as time out or being sent away, what we're essentially, the underlying message is that what we're telling children is that when you feeling you're most out of control or when you need my guidance the most, I'm not going to be there for you. You have to actually go and, and sort this out yourself. Certainly no child I know is ever going to go to their room and think about what they've done. Nine times out of ten, you're going to have a child sitting in the room thinking about how unfair it is, as Zoe said, how unjust, how it wasn't their fault, how much they are angry at the person, either um, you know a sibling or the parent who's caused them to be in that room and those sorts of things. They're not really, they don't have yet the capacity to think through why what they did was wrong or, or anything like that. And I guess that sort of illustrates the difference between a punishment and what discipline is. So discipline going back to the old school definition is to guide, to teach. And that's what we want to do. So when a child is displaying behavior that we would deem as antisocial, 
that is our opportunity to help that child regulate. So if they're they're heightened, if they're you know crying, if they're ten, um, you know having a meltdown, angry, and they've just whacked their sibling, something like that, then we want to help them regulate themselves, and then we want to use that moment to teach. We need to, to about what what other alternatives were there. Can they identify what they did that was antisocial, as opposed to coming in and punishing, which is timeouts some families smack, those sorts of things where there's no real information being given to the child except, well, you can't do this because it will result in some sort of (laughs) fear-based punishment generally. So what we really want to try and avoid when our child um, is displaying an antisocial behaviour is distracting, is, you know, denying, degrading, blaming us shutting down, like I can't deal with you, getting mad. Now we can express that we might be upset or that we are, you know, that we're feeling it difficult to communicate at the moment for whatever reason. And, you know, I guess the overarching message is that we we teach what we react, how we react. So when we, we do those things, when we shut down and get mad and yell and deny and degrade, we te- we're essentially telling the child to don't feel, don't have those big emotions. They're not, they're not appropriate. We don't want you to share your feelings and you're alone in your internal world, you know, especially when you have big feelings. So I know that all sounds very heavy and have, all very do- doom and gloom. And I really want to just sort of pause here and acknowledge that we're not going to get it right 100% of the time. There are going to be days where, you know, yelling does occur (laughs) Um, and that's where it's going back and repairing that relationship um, and acknowledging, you know what, I I tell you that you can't yell at your brother but yes, I have just yelled and I understand that this happens and I'm sorry and this is what I'm going to do to try and make sure that doesn't happen again or as often. So what we want to do when we're responding to behaviour and I use the word responding as opposed to reacting is to focus on empathy building resilience, being intrinsically motivated. And there's always going to be, as humans, there's a, a there's healthy shame and then there's unhealthy shame. Um, and I think healthy shame is what we have developed over hundreds of thousands of years so that we can be members of society. Um, but unhealthy shame is, I think, when we start to internalise that shame. So, yeah, de- basically we're trying to reclaim the word discipline as um, to teach and to take that deep breath Certainly don't allow the behaviour to continue and to address the behaviour, um, but it's doing it in a way that's teaching, not punishing. So how do we teach prosocial behaviours? <laughs> we basically do that through responsive care and consistent boundaries. Um, but we'll just quickly just run through as a, a bit of a refresher for everybody about I think we discussed it in our emotional health podcast about the how the brain works. We I keep, always refer to the hand model of the brain, you know, with your wrist being the spinal cord, the palm being your brain stem, the bottom of your palm, the thumb, the limbic area, which is essentially, oh, sorry, the, the brain stem is your reptilian brain and that's your flight, flight or freeze response. And then I guess just sort of skipping ahead, 
your hand that goes over the top is your frontal cortex that integrates all the information that you're receiving, but also processes it um, and allows you to make decisions about what you're going to do with that information. And then sometimes when children and adults receiving information, especially during times of stress, what happens is that it's more our reptilian brain that engages, which results in withdrawing or, you know, yelling or, you know, in a child hitting or something like that. What it's our job to do is make sure that our frontal lobe's engaged and that we're thinking and problem solving and not reacting and then teaching the children to do that as well. And it's really important to remember that children's frontal lobe is not fully developed until they're like 26, 25, 26. So it's a long journey. And that's why when we say children aren't doing these behaviours intentionally to like from malice, it's because they don't actually have the capacity yet. They haven't developed that part of their brain as yet. And, you know, all of that beautiful social learning that we're talking about through behaviour comes over that full period of 26 years, maybe even longer, I guess, for some people. And, you know, the nuances of social learning with around behaviour are really, really quite intricate. And I think it's really important there to also remember that sometimes I think as adults we kind of chug along going, we, we have this expectation that children will pick up some of those nuances as we go along and they actually don't always. Or we have this expectation, oh, now that they're five they should be doing this when – that's not a really realistic expectation either because they do have to learn and their learning will go forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards in regard to learning all the behavioural stuff. Absolutely. And I think as we'll discuss a bit later on too, that sometimes there are, even though they may, you know, and I use quotation marks here, know how to behave, there are at times where, you know, they are f- becoming down with something or there is something going on that they are then unable to, because it's that brain kicking, you know, reptilian brain kicking in, they are unable to think things through and know what's wrong and right. They do just react. And so, as you said, it's a bit of a one step forward, two steps back sometimes because they could have been doing something for a year and then something changes in their life and, and, it, and it seems like they're regressing, but they're not. They're, yeah. Their brain's just doing what it needs to do. Yeah, and time can be quite abstract for children as well. So while we think that maybe something that happened six months ago they've moved on from, all of a sudden they're dealing with that in in their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so that can trigger some of these misbehaviours as well. Yeah. I guess what I really like to, another way, because I'm all about the visualisation today, is to visualise it is that if you sort of think about your child's response to things or or their behaviour as a river, um, and they're in the little boat travelling along the river, and the river's the green zone, the river's the happy zone, they're travelling along there. But every now and again, they'll, or, or some more often than not, will bump up against the shore and that's then entering the red zone. And so that's when they need that help regulating and that's why quite often when we'll see those antisocial behaviours, you know, popping up on top of the iceberg. And, and you know, I think probably what I was trying to demonstrate before is that some children, their rivers will be quite wide. It will take quite a lot for them to bump into to the the shore and they might just have slight glitches every now and other children that river their green zone where they're they're content and they're not dysregulated is quite narrow 
and then you'll have other children that are, at times it's quite wide and then it will narrow off again and then go wide again and then go narrow again. Uh, and even adults are like that. You know, times of stress, our, you know, our rivers narrow and, and we're much more sensitive to things around us. So children are certainly the same way. I guess what we can do as adults and, and I know that we're sort of going through this quite, you know, we could spend three days talking about this really, but I do want to sort of be able to come out of this with some ideas of what we as parents and caregivers can actually do to help our children. So we will go through those, but I also am aware that we may touch, um, we may go back and record some podcasts about specific behaviours that parents can't seek our advice about quite often, such as um, children who bite and and hair pulling and things like that. Just so you know, like we are aware that they occur, but this is just a general behaviour overview. <laughs> so what we really want to do is make sure we have boundaries in place. So children, you know, they feel safe when they have a limit. Children who don't know where the limit is will continuously test that until they know that it is there because they they need it to feel safe. They need it to know what they can explore and and they need to know that somebody is in charge. Children who are the leaders of their families, <laughs> it's scary for them. They're not equipped for that role. But you'd be surprised how many, I guess, families, you know, wanting their children to be free to explore, which is certainly what we advocate, but you do have to have boundaries within that. Yes, there's a um, difference between disciplined parenting and passive parenting. Yes, the children just, they need a limit. So what that limit is, that's going to differ household to household. It's something that as a educators at Adiona, you know, we'll quite obvi- um, regularly sit down and review and say, oh, look, this limit isn't working because of this reason, or actually I think we need this limit here. You know, sometimes it will be a hard and fast rule in regards to safety. Other times it can be a little bit more, okay, give and take, and we'll see how it goes. But as a, you know, because we do have so many adults in a guidance role there, we, we have to make sure we're consistent that every single staff member there or educator there is is consistent with what that limit is. Otherwise, we'd have children continuously testing it and seeing, well, if I wonder if I do this with this staff member watching, what's going to happen? Which sometimes they still do, which is great, which is what they're meant to do. But they do learn that we're all on the same page and we have spoken about these things. <laughs> so that's why it's a really good idea that if you do notice there's some testing behaviour going on to, you know, have a conversation with the caregivers in your child's life at home and say, well, is the child confused because dad lets them dance on the table, but mum won't, but grandma does sometimes. We, you know, we need to come up with a bit of a, a consistent approach to that. Conversation. So this is my <laughs> other one that we need to, as much as possible, give children options and <laughs> sounds weird, but prime, prime them for what's about to happen. You get a very different response if you are able to tell your child, you get two more minutes of playtime, then it's time to have lunch, rather than immediately going, okay, it's lunchtime, come on now. Because if they're in the middle of a play cycle or if they're in the middle of something they really want to finish, some children will immediately go to the red. They'll see, think it's unjust that they have to stop what they're doing to have lunch and they don't want lunch. So we try and give as much warning about what's going to happen as possible. 
with younger children, you probably only want to do, you know, you know, we're going to wash our hands and then we're going to have lunch. With your older children, you could probably go, okay, we're going to have morning tea and then after morning tea, we have to go to the shops and then after the shops, we can come home and you'll have time to play. You could add a few more steps into there. I think that um, using concrete examples is really good, Tracy. with that for your children. I mean, so not saying for the younger children who have no concept of time, you can say five minutes, but that could mean anything to them. So yeah, we I quite often encourage our educators or parents to say, you know, I'm going to go do this and then X, Y, Z, a phys- some sort of physical sign, like when next time I come back, then we're going to do lunch or, you know, so- something that is not so abstract as time for them. Yeah. We even have it as simple as like in our house when the song's finished, mm-hmm. that means it's time to – and then that way it's a bit of a reminder to me too that when I hear the song finish, it means I've got to get up and do whatever I just said we would do. <laughs> yeah. But I think so, as adults too, we hate being interrupted when we're in the middle of doing stuff. Like it's just a human nature thing. So uh, I think that, um, you know, we can relate to that one quite easily. Yeah, absolutely. So within that conversation as well, when we are talking to children about behaviours, it's such an opportunity for new vocabulary and new language to, to enter their world that then is going to empower them as they get older. So what we would encourage families to do in the moment if it's possible, and once again, I want to fully acknowledge it's not going to happen 100% of the time, we're just all going to do the best we can, is that to use narration when we're in the moment because it helps us, uh, it helps the child exp- understand what's happening and it helps us regulate ourselves. So as I think we discussed in our emotional health podcast, we want to say to them, you know, first, uh, you know, I'm going to put your sock on. Can you point your toes, put your sock on, you know, so we're inviting their cooperation, their participation, which is going to just help in the first place. But I guess when we're sort of talking about responding. So say that you've walked in and your three-year-old has drawn on the wall. The way that we could respond to that was that we could, you know, get upset, take away the pens, blah, blah, blah. Or you could come sort of get down to their level and say, I'm going to put the pencils away now because we need to use pencils on the paper, not on the wall how about you come with me and we'll get a cloth and you can help me clean it up. And then we might have a bit of a a talk while we're having lunch after we finish cleaning up about how, yeah, pencils probably should only really be used for paper. So it's about narrating what you're doing. And that's a natural consequence. It makes sense to the child then as well Mm -hmm. that it wasn't, oh, you drew on the wall, now you're going to be shoved off to sit on the stairs, (laughs) which has no connection or learning. Whereas that's, it's a bottom-up learning a process of, we don't draw on walls, let's fix this. Yeah, that's right. We want to use language that will promote social behaviour. So we want to try and tell toddlers what, or, and children what is allowed as opposed to is what not allowed. It's like saying you can't do that is like holding a red flag to some children because they're like, well, can't I? I'm going to test this. <laughs> There are still some adults like that too. <laughs> so what we <laughs> what we want to do is try and say um, instead of don't put your feet on the table is can you put your feet on the floor, please? Um, it's just a, a nicer way and it, it keeps you calm, like a <laughs> subconscious psychological thing, keeps you calmer. Um, you know, 
instead of saying, um, you know, say that your child's swinging on their chair, you know, don't swing on your chair. We'll say, can you please put your chair's feet on the floor? And then if they continue to do it, you, you might give a warning and say, I, you know, the chair's feet need to stay on the floor. If you keep swinging, I'm going to have to ask you to stand up because it's going to be dangerous if you fall off your chair. So you're giving a reason, you're giving an alternative or what might be a bit of a a consequence, a natural consequence sort of, you know, or as with the drawing on the wall thing, you'd provide an alternative. I can't let you draw on the wall or, you know, but I can let you draw on the paper. So you're saying what they can do, you're finishing off of what they can do. This is probably another flag is that just to be aware of the conversations we have with others in front of the child and what we're saying about our child in those conversations. Our words mean a lot to children and they really internalize the messages we send them. So even though you've done all of those things right, if you're then relaying that story to grandma the next day and you're rolling your eyes and <laughs> saying, oh, I can't believe they did that, then that's going to undermine a lot of that really good work that you've already done. The other thing is as much as we try and tell the child what they can do as opposed to what they can't do, when it comes to things like biting or if they're going to hit a sibling or something like this, which is all perfectly normal, especially in toddlerhood, like please don't think that it's not, is that it is okay to try and stop the child from if you see them going to bite or going to hit and just say, I won't let you do that or I can't let you do that and and then hold the child until you feel that they're Uh, are not going to continue with that course of action. The next one we have is choice. So we want to make sure that we are giving children as much control over them, their autonomy, I guess, over themselves as possible, you know, within still having limits. So we want to, you know, as we've discussed before, children only really have control over sleeping, eating and toileting. <laughs> They're the three things that nobody, no matter what you do, can make them do without their permission. But what we want to do is empower children so that we're not turning everything into a power battle. So, you know, for young children, you probably only have to give one or two choices. Would you like the red cup or the blue cup? Would you like to draw on the paper inside or outside? (laughs) You know, it has to be on the paper, but where we do it can be, (laughs) you know, for older children, that might be able to get a bit more complex. You may even be able to ask them, well, what's your ideas in terms of how to solve this problem? You know, I remember asking my daughter that once about something and her solution was to stick all the furniture to the roof. And I went, well, actually, no, that's not a really practical solution. Let's rethink this. And then, you know, but it's interesting to see what they come up with. Akuparu around decisions and choices, sorry, more to the point. Um, We've been talking a little bit lately about decision fatigue as well. So just uh, (laughs) uh, while choices are great, just make sure you're not giving too many choices because it will just... uh, the child will end up getting fatigued. And sometimes you have to recognise when your child is just in a situation where they're not going to make a choice and so make a choice for them. Absolutely, yeah. It's about knowing your child and where they're at and what sort of day. Yeah, if it's 9 o'clock on a Friday night, they're probably not going to make a very good choice. (laughs) They're not going to be capable of making a choice then. Yeah, and as I said, that will differ child to child as well. So there are some children who, if given, even in the, uh, you know, we witness in the playground, they'll sort of wander around a bit lost. And they're the children you know that you need to go up and go, you know, would you like to play with the cars? <laughs> and give them some direction um, until they, they get that sense. So consistency we've already touched on. So the limits or the 
the rules, whatever you want to call them, boundaries, guidelines in your house or in your your household, your family need to be the same all the time and across all adults in the child's life. I say that, but I also want to acknowledge that they will learn that with mum, I can do this and with grandma, I can do this and with dad, I can do this. I guess it's important for the people who are primarily living in the same household to be fairly consistent. Otherwise, that can cause some disharmony between the adults and, and, the, and the children living in the household. But children are also inc- incredibly smart and adaptive and they, they will know the different contexts and what they can do within each of those contexts. And then, as I mentioned before, we want to acknowledge that children, they go through, we have to observe with their behavior if it's that they can't do something or they won't do something. And that's going to be dependent on their age and stage. So we can't get angry at a one-year-old for not tying their shoelace because they just can't. They don't have the prior experience or anything like that to be able to complete that task. And so we also have to acknowledge that for our five-year-old, that may also be true, that they're, for whatever reason, their fine motor development might not allow them to do that at that stage. So what we're looking at the can't or won't, we need to look at their age and stage, their prior experience, whether they've been exposed to that task before or to that situation in terms of knowing how to respond or behave, their level of alertness, because as I said, all of these things are going to impact as to whether their river is wide or narrow and how quickly they're going to bump into the sides, their level of hunger and tiredness and their level of motivation, which I think is something that we forget too. It's like, well, they've tied their shoelaces 150 times before, but today they just can't do it and we're going off our heads because we need to get out the door. (laughs) But you just have to understand, like all of us, they have days where they're just not motivated to do those tasks and that may result in antisocial or uncooperative behaviour. And, you know, that is also part of teaching children how do you how do you, what can you do when you feel that way? And then my, we want to be calm. So, so much of behavior is about how we respond. And I think that's, you know, what was always saying before that so much of that learning happens in a social context and that we as the adults in the relationship can either escalate or de-escalate the situation. So we need to make sure that we're calm before we engage with our children regarding behavior. So obviously we need to stop any immediate danger that, that may occur to our child or, or whoever may be the recipient of the antisocial behaviour. But we need to make sure that we're going in there to be responsive, not reactive, and to acknowledge that their brain will model ours. So if we go in there at a heightened state, their brain, their response will be heightened as well. What I like to tell myself before dealing with any situation is that you've got to check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's my little motto. So you make sure that you're okay and slow down. If you need to take five minutes, if you need to stop the danger and just say, look, wait here for a minute, I just need to go to and get a drink of water and I'll, I'll come back and talk to you. Do that. Take that moment to yourself because it will be invaluable. And then just another little trick, if you get down to their level, then once again, it's one of those weird little psychological tricks, but A, you're less threatening to the child so they can de-escalate, they're not feeling as threatened. And also it helps you calm down, that sitting down, 
being with the child sitting on the floor or, or kneeling on the floor with them, it, it calms you down as well. I always say it's like two seconds of thinking time as you go down to their level, <laughs> Sorry, which makes a big longer. difference. <laughs> yeah. You can make it five seconds if you want to go slow, <laughs> but yeah. Just to, just to kind save of, my knees, it might be a bit <laughs> Yeah, to kind of center yourself, take a big breath as you go down and just get yourself ready to be the best adult you can be in that minute. Exactly. And we want to model the behavior that we want to see. So we want to, you know, we need to acknowledge that if we yell, then the next time they get angry and they yell at us, we've modeled that. I'm not saying it's wrong or right. It's just that we've modeled that and we need to acknowledge that, you know, it, it's that, hip, you know, if if we hit, they will learn that hitting is a, a way to solve problems. So that's why we avoid those management techniques because they don't benefit anybody and it's teaching the wrong message. Then we want to connect. So once we've checked ourselves, before we wreck ourselves, we want to take a deep breath and connect. So we want to get down low so we don't heighten the threat. We want to be calm and intentional. We may not always know what we're going to say, then that's okay. (laughs) None of this is a script, but we need to show empathy. We need to say, you are really angry or you are really sad Or, you know, in the case that they've drawn on the wall, you really, you know, you were feeling really creative just then, weren't you? (laughs) All because we're acknowledging the feeling, it doesn't mean that we're condoning the behavior. So we're acknowledging, yes, you you were really, really, really angry. I can't let you hit though. That, That is not okay. So we want to, we need before we can even have start having that discussion about what was wrong or right, we need to make sure that they are calm. So if they're still quite angry, you can see that clenched up body language or if they're still sobbing or, or whatever's happened uh, or if they're still really heightened, if it's, you know, they're overexcited. Um, we need to wait until they're, they're in the green zone, <laughs> they're regulated. You know, that might be that you just have to sit with them. Sometimes children, if they're really, really angry, they don't want you near them and that's – it's okay. I'm just. I'm. I have to be near you to make sure you're safe. But I'm just going to sit here, and when you're ready, you can come to me. You know your child. You know how long that takes. I with my older daughter. Sometimes I've had to say, you know, I, you know, you can't literally sit in a room maybe for half an hour. <laughs> so say, I can see you're still really upset. I have to go start dinner. I will be in the kitchen. You come and get me when you're when you want to talk or when you're ready, or, or I will come and check back in with you once I put the peas on, whatever it is. And the opposite end of that is that sometimes you have those children who are real body learners, and when they are in that crisis, they actually just need a massive bear hug to kind of ground them again. So you can have kind of extremes within that. Absolutely, but essentially, what you know, in that moment, children are seeking safety. So whatever that is for them, and they need to feel safe, seen and soothed, and that will make them feel secure. And then we can go on to the teaching portion of the, <laughs> of the, um, the whole event. Um, so, you know, and once they're soothed, it helps us put us in the green zone as well and, and ready to listen to respond to what they have to say. And once we have connected, that as I said, that's when we can have those discussions. And look, to be honest, sometimes with a toddler, it can feel hard and you just do need to keep it simple and, you know, reiterate that message. You know, I can't let you or, you know, we don't draw on the wall. Here is some paper, you know, maybe walk through. Here's where we keep the paper. Here's where we keep the pens. Or maybe that's a time to reflect and go, oh, actually, 
I need to keep the paper and pen or the pens up higher <laughs> and just get them down when I know that I can supervise adequately and things like that. In the case of, say, um, a sibling hitting another sibling, yes, you know, once that, you know, you would empathise, oh, you were really mad at your brother because he took your diary and you were so angry. You just, you felt like you couldn't control, you know, try and, you know, get as much as possible, try and get the child to tell their story. But if they can't, you might put words into it. We can't, I can't let you hurt other people. What could we do next time you felt that way? Or, you know, even getting them to identify, oh, what does it feel like when you start to feel really angry like that? <laughs> With my son now, he knows that all he has to do is clench his fists and hold his arms really straight down beside him. And he'll look at me and I go, I can see you're angry. And that's enough for him. He then doesn't need to escalate it generally any further than that. So it's just having those little cues that they know you can see and you can acknowledge what they're feeling. And then as we touched on before, consequences. So as much as possible, we try and rely on natural consequences. So, you know, if you draw on the wall, you can you can come and help me clean it up. I, I personally think that a collaborative approach to those things is better because if we want children to help us, if we want them to help us set the table, then, you know, we should help them clean the wall. <laughs> um, um, I think it, and that we're in this together and we're learning and it's okay. You know, other things might be if they're refusing to put on a jumper. Well, that's okay, but we can't go to the park until we do because it's really cold. So we will miss out. Or if they're dilly-dallying, putting on their shoes, well, we're going to miss the soccer game if you, you don't put on your shoes. Tracy, what about making children say sorry for their behaviour? <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> So what we want to teach our children is empathy. So we want to be able to them to say, I don't want to hit somebody because I know it will hurt them and and I don't want to, you know, I know what it feels like to be hurt and I don't want them to be hurt. I we when we force children to say sorry, we're essentially forcing them to lie in some instances. Because unless they have that genuine, genuine remorse and that empathy for, for if they have hurt either accidentally or purposely somebody else, it's not going to be meaningful. It's not going to be genuine. Some children will think, I've said sorry, so now I don't have to get into trouble. Um, that sort of the thing. There's no consequences. I said sorry. Why are there any more consequences? Um, I robbed the bank. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Um, and it's, you know... It's not teaching the message and it's, it's it's ultimately not making them accountable or responsible for their behaviour at all. It's not teaching them anything. It's not moving anything forward. If anything, what I would encourage is that, you know, so say, Zoe, I saw someone, you know, there was an altercation with you. I would encourage them to acknowledge with you what happened. So... You know, if I'm talking to that child, they're now regulated. When we're talking about what's happened, what we could do differently next time, I would ask that child, okay, well, how do you think Zoe's feeling? What do you, th is there anything that you could do to repair your relationship with Zoe? And then the child might go, I can say sorry. I'm like, okay, well, you could do that. In my household, it's getting the other child another ice pack or something like that, some sort of acknowledgement and of what's happened. And I, that's a much more genuine way because as you said sorry doesn't fix everything sometimes you do have to go above and beyond to solve what has been done 
Yeah. And I quite often get parents who say to me, they understand why their children shouldn't say sorry, but they feel this social obligation or social pressure when they're in um, a setting where their child does something and then they feel like the other parent is looking for that sorry to come. I typically just say to parents in that situation to just model what you would ultimately expect your child to do. Do all the other things, but then if you feel the sorry needs to come, I would prefer it to come from the adult kind of just modelling rather than the child having to say sorry. Absolutely. Yep, definitely. So I think that is our basic overview. (laughs) I say that an hour in on behaviour. Is there anything that you wanted to add, Zoe? No, I think that was pretty much it. And we don't want to give our audience information fatigue. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. So we'll leave it there for today. We'll put obviously a summary and any links to um, any helpful resources in the show notes. And as I said, we'll discuss things like intrinsic motivation, urges, and specific behaviours in upcoming podcasts. Thanks for listening today and we'll speak to you soon. Bye. That's it for this episode of the Adiona Podcast. Be sure to subscribe for more fascinating insights into the early childhood development process and don't forget to rate and review the show so we can continue to bring you the best content. See you on the next episode of the Adiona Podcast.